So if you've got your Bibles, please go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, it seemed after the, the, uh, the 8 that there's a lot more to pack into this message than what is normal. So uh, I, I don't think you need safety belts for this one. You're going to need crash helmets because we're going to go at a rapid pace. And then right at the end, we're going to deploy the airbags and we'll stop. All right, so that's how it's going to go. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry that there are no um, uh, slides behind me. We had a problem on that side. Um, this is a text that uh, I've, I've never preached on. There's heaps of texts I haven't preached on, um, but I know for sure I've never preached on this one because I would know it if I had. There's two verses in the space of about seven that are highly controversial and very difficult um, to understand and to preach. And I want to start out two parts today. The first one is going to be for us today, talk about the role of women in church. And then next week, we're going to talk about the role of men in church. Okay, so men, if you think that I'm going to let you off, no, because no, next week's your turn. Um, and the other one is don't think you can tune out because even although this is applied to women, a lot of the application to ladies also is application to men at the same time. So don't go like, oh, well, pastor's preaching on, uh, um, you know, preaching to ladies, so, you know, I can just tune out. Don't do that. So by way of introduction, um, for those ladies who are married, um, I found some um, advice for you, some expectations. Um, it was uh, granted, printed on May the 13th, um, or published May the 13th, 1955, but I thought that it might still be good uh, for you today. So here are a couple of ideas. Um, it's called The Good Wife's Guide, and was... Uh, printed um, or published in Housekeeping Monthly. Um, number one is this, have dinner ready, plan ahead. It's speaking about when your husband comes around, getting ready for your husband to come home. Have dinner ready, plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. And all the guys are becoming charismatic now. and going like, amen, amen, amen. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him from the night before, clearly. And on, are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home. And the prospect of a good meal, especially his favorite dish, is part of the warm welcome needed. Okay, ladies, you got that one? I didn't see any of you taking notes. Just, just saying. <laughs> Clear away the clutter, number two. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives. Run a dust cloth over the tables. I'm, just, I'm, I'm reading it. It's not mine. I'm just, I'm just reading some clearly good, you know, good advice over here. Um, be happy to see him. I would think that's obvious. Minimize all noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, the dryer, or vacuum. Encourage the children to be quiet. Greet him with a warm smile and show sincerity in your desire to please him. Don't greet him with complaints and problems. Your goal, to try to make sure your home is a place of peace, order, and tranquility where your husband can renew himself in body and spirit. Last one, a good wife always knows her place. <laughs> For the record, I didn't write those, at least not all of them. Um, no. The point is this, times have changed, haven't they? Um, I wouldn't say that any of those things are wrong, but what I would say is that some of them are just impractical in the world that we live in today. 
Um, they just are. And times have changed. And the text that we're going to have a look at this morning is a text that's written to the first century, but God's word is still relevant to the 21st century. And we have to try and hold this intention, text which is going to be really tough for us to apply, but also at the same time it is applicable and we're going to have to apply it. So, so there's this tension that we're going to have to hold. And so now you're ready to go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 8. I desire then, Paul writes to Timothy, remember he, he's setting a plumb line of faith here. He's, he's draw, drawing a parallel line that everything else is going to get measured on. He's already spoken about um, meeting uh, heresy that's coming into the church. So Timothy, go and establish a plumb line of the gospel, of true doctrine. Um, Timothy, there's a plumb line of when Jesus intersected your life. Timothy, there's a plumb line of how we pray and how we pray for the lost. Now he's going into a plumb line of how do we relate in church, ladies first. And here we go. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This obviously applies to men. We're going to add that on to next week's, all right? So this is going to become part of next week's as we, we go on to that. Likewise, so likewise in the way of worship, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And at this point, everyone's looking around at all the ladies' hair in front of them going, which of the ladies have braided hair? So not with costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. And then he explains what is proper, good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay. Anybody want to preach? Because anybody want to hit this one out of the park today? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor or a sinner. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so there's two very difficult things in this, or three actually. One, um, braided hair, gold pearls, etc., makeup, um, earrings, jewelry, is that a no-no for Christian ladies, number one? Two, uh, women speaking in church and teaching in church. Um, go back a little bit to Corinthians. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, this will give you a little bit of a, 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 an opening on this one. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34. And uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he starts in verse um, 33 uh, of 1 Corinthians 14. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, which is fantastic because we want some peace now. We, we're a bit confused. We want peace now. And so he carries on, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law said. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. So, you know when the Bible says one thing, only once, then we can look at it and go, well, maybe we can apply it in another way. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe uh, Paul meant something different. But he says it twice. 
He says it once in Timothy, and he says it once in 1 Corinthians, and both times he's saying, hey, woman, you need to be quiet. And because of that, Paul has been labeled as a chauvinist and a woman hater. And so there are some commentaries that um, I was looking through where they call him that, the woman hater, because he tells women that they must be quiet in church and mustn't say anything. There's a couple of rules that we need to apply to this over here. Whenever you come to a text that is difficult to understand, you always interpret a difficult text in the light of another text that's easy to understand but deals with the same subject. Okay, so some rules in interpreting the scripture and you have to get the rules. You need to know how to interpret scripture. Otherwise, what happens is we find text and we bring our own meaning into the text. That's called eisegesis. We read our own um, understanding or our own meaning into the text. Instead, we need to get the text to speak to us. So these are some of them. One is context. What is the, what is the context of this text? What's the historical context? What's the social context? What's the context with scriptures above and before? What's the context of the book that was written? That's number one. Number two, if you're reading from the Old Testament, Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. He's the one who's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. The New Testament, it's all about Jesus. If you missed that, you've missed a big part of the, Old Test, of the New Testament. All right. So Jesus is the New Testament. Again, come to a difficult passage and apply the rule that says Scripture interprets Scripture. So difficult passage, try find another passage that speaks about a similar thing, and that brings clarity. And last one, never ever develop a doctrine around an obscure text, one obscure text. You're running to danger when you do that. You need to be able to develop doctrine on the entire um, spread of Scripture, not just one text. So we're remembering some of, those, uh, some of those rules. And here are, some, here are four questions that we need to ask launching into what we want to find out. Number one, um, that's uh, the whole thing of adorning yourself, ladies. Number two, women should be quiet. And we won't even get there today. But what about this one? It looks like from verse 15 that she will be saved through childbearing. Okay, which is a big problem if you're not married and don't have children, or you are married and can't have children, because if you then take a scripture and apply doctrine to it, like what I've just said, you're going to be saved if you have a child. Um, you're going to end up in heresy, all right? Because take that difficult scripture, bring an easier scripture. We are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace. There's an easier scripture applied to this scripture. And if that scripture now doesn't make more sense, then the application is, I don't understand this scripture well enough yet. So I now need to try and understand it more. Okay, so you take an easy scripture, understand the difficult scripture. Here we go. Here's some questions. Number one, is this a command for all time? Paul says, um, I desire then, uh, well, he doesn't say a command. So is this a command? Is it a law? Is it a desire? There's sometimes where Paul's like, hey, I desire, and it's just a desire. Sometimes he says, yeah, I desire, but this is not a law, but I desire, and it would be good if you do this, but it's not a law. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So we like, uh, and so there's almost like, in, in some occasions, Paul allows Christian wisdom to be the rule, right? You're a Christian, let wisdom be the rule. Is that the case over here? That's what we're trying to ask. So if this is a, um, a command for all time, then the command for first century must still apply to the command for the 21st century. It's written into a specific context, and the context it's written into is two. One, it's written into a Jewish context. Two, it's written into a Greek context. The context for Jewish ladies was dismal. For Jewish ladies, they were seen as something little, just a little higher than a thing. All right? Kid you not. Ladies, 
You were seen just a little bit higher than a thing. Um, when it came to worship times, ladies were not allowed in the synagogue. Uh, you were not allowed to read God's word. You were not allowed to be taught God's word. You were not allowed to worship in the synagogue. You had to sit outside in the gallery and watch from the outside. In fact, if you went to a rabbi and a, a, as a lady and asked a rabbi to educate you or to teach you, he would consider that the same as casting pearl to pigs. You go, I, sorry, I don't teach ladies. That's like, you know, throwing my jewelry to the pigs. I'm not doing that. But it was still your role to raise your children as believers and to pass on faith. So with your husband, you passed on faith. Now we go to the, the next context, which is a Greek context, which is even worse. Because in the Greek context, married Greek ladies lived in their own quarters, hardly ever left their quarters. That's where their husbands went to visit them. The men were out having fun. The ladies were in their quarters staying over there. Ladies in public weren't even acknowledged by even members of their own family. So your brother, your father, your husband, they wouldn't even acknowledge your presence if they walked past you in the street. And many ladies that were walking around the streets were ladies that were plying their trade as temple prostitutes. And so here, come, here comes Paul into this context, a context where women are seen as little lower than things. And, uh, and then Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, For those who are in Christ, there is now no male or female, there is no rich or poor, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile. Because in Christ, we're all the same. So what coming into Christ, coming into a relationship with Christ does, is it reaches down to the abyss of, that kept women below men and brings them up to a place of equality. It also goes to men and says, stop thinking so highly of yourselves and brings them down to this place where at the foot of the cross, everything's equal. That at the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter how much money you earn. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what gender you are. At the foot of the cross, it's all equal. And so what Paul is trying to say now to these ladies, and we'll get to this just now, is, and he's writing to Timothy. Timothy, there's a context over here. These women have, are now allowed to worship alongside their husbands. They're allowed to worship in the same congregation, daughters with their fathers. Mothers with their sons, wives with their husbands, they're allowed to worship together in the same, uh, same building because we worship Jesus together. In that kind of environment, some things could go a little bit pear-shaped. We'll talk about that just now. So is it a context for all? In the context we live in, well, I'd hope that we don't treat our ladies the same way. I hope that none of you keep your wives locked up in a room and kind of let her out to cook a meal, and then you lock her up in a room again. That is the case. You need to come for prayer afterwards, not the man, the lady, so that we can come and visit your husband, all right? Uh, a couple of the elders would like to do that. No, that's question number one. Question number two, can this command, if it is a command, can it be consistently applied? It's really important that if we're reading Scripture and going, well, that's a command, we have to be able to apply it. So if God's word is saying women must not teach and women must be silent and et cetera, et cetera, it, you must be able to consistently apply it, not just across the board, but also across history. And if you just think about this, think of your Sunday school teachers, how many of them were ladies, right? I want you to think of uh, missionaries who've made a massive impact for, for the gospel across the world, how many of them were ladies, unmarried ladies, all right? 
So just on the historical spread, we see this one has not been applied consistently if it is a command. The other thing that I noticed is this, is that those who are saying women must be silent and not teach, the commentaries that I've studied about that one will often say that well, the reason why there were women on the mission field and there, were, there are women teaching Sunday school is because men didn't do the job, right? And so because men didn't step up, that's why ladies had to do the job. But one of the fiercest proponents of that view, John MacArthur, he says in his commentary on, on, on the matter, he says, look, you read the scripture, you see all these ladies that have done great things. And history, you see all these women who have served the kingdom. And then, and, and he says the reason for that is because, as I said, men didn't step up to the job. But then three pages later, he says, you can't use that argument. That's not the reason why um, women have done that. Women still shouldn't be doing it. It's not be, and so he contradicts himself. Within three pages, he contradicts his argument. One, he says, it's because, and the other one, he says, you can't use that argument to explain why. It's a very difficult command to apply across the board. Because you need to also ask, well, where does this command get applied and where doesn't it get applied? If it gets applied across the board, do we tell women to be quiet? And this kind of leads into the third question. And the third question is this, what is the nature of church in Corinthians? In the Corinthians passage, what is the nature of church? Is church the gathered saints, the believers gathered? Is church the building? Is church a small group of gathered saints? Is church where two or three are gathered in my name, where women are not allowed to teach? Um, and is it just teaching or is it also speaking? Because it says women must be silent in one part. It says women mustn't teach in the other part. So do we roll like this? The church starts at the gate and we have people there welcoming you and big sign that says, dear ladies, please remain silent after this point. We have a pink line painted across the, the gate there. When the ladies come in, you come in here and suddenly your kid's like, mommy, mommy, I want a toasted sandwich. And mommy, mommy, I want a toasted sandwich. You're trying to answer, mommy, mommy, I want a toasted sandwich. Now you've got to tell your child that you don't have any money or go and ask dad. So you're like. And then you walk out to the gate, you cross the pink line and you're like, okay, your dad's got some money. We're going to give it to him and then we'll go in. All right, are you ready? Okay, go. And Lord willing, it's not your daughter who asked that because if your daughter asked that, she's a woman, remember, she's a girl, so she can't. She's also not allowed to talk in church. Now, I know I might be trivializing it a little bit. But can you see how it gets a bit messy when we try to apply this thing? What is the nature of church? Is it the building? Are women not allowed to talk in here? Is it just teaching women are not allowed to do? Are you not allowed to lead a small group? Are you not allowed to speak in a church plant? Are you not allowed to preach God's word um, on the plains of Africa somewhere or in the Middle East somewhere because no other men are going and you're a woman who's gone and now you're preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. Do you go, well, this has become like a church. I can't, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just can't. People are like, tell us about Jesus. Nah, you know, 1 Timothy, I can't. You know, how do, we, how do we apply that? So what's the nature of church? Last question that we have to understand is what is the scope of the command to be silent? Must women not say a word in the building? Or also amongst the saints? Or must women just not teach doctrine? Or must women not do any kind of teaching? So what, what is the scope of the, the silence? Is it, is it any talking? So, so what is it? There are three things that come out in this, and we're going to jump into these three, three pictures, and we're going to try and answer some of those questions and try and be consistent in our application. This is really important that we're consistent as we try to apply this. 
The first one that uh, Paul starts to deal with over here with Timothy and first plumb line is that women need to have a submissive spirit. So listen to what uh, it says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 9. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty um, and self-control, not with braided hair, but with proper, um, but that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Here we go, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So when the role of women in church, when, when, ladies, when you come into church and, uh, and you're receiving instruction, your heart, your attitude needs to be one of submissiveness. Now let's just pause on the ladies' side and say, guys, isn't it true that all of us need a submissive heart when we are sitting under teaching? Isn't it true that all of us should be coming in and saying, let me be teachable? Let me submit to what God wants to say to me. Should it, so, so it's not just ladies, but obviously Paul's just trying to focus in on this one. But all of us, when we come in, we should have submissive hearts. All of us, when we come, we go, let, let me hear what God is saying, and let me, let me ask God to change my thinking. Let me, let me see what God is saying about his word on this one. So we're coming in with submissive hearts. Paul kind of says in Philippians, he says, the attitude that, that God had when he became a man, God became Jesus, it's exactly the same thing. That though Jesus was in equality, he was equal to God. He did not consider that equality something to be held on to. Instead, Jesus gave it up and submitted himself uh, to becoming a human being, to becoming a man, a servant, dying on a cross. It's all submission. It's all I'm submitting to, to the Father. I'm submitting, I'm submitting, I'm submitting. Even at the cross, Jesus is going, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. There's submission right there. And so submission is clear for all of us. But Paul's going, hey, ladies, when you come in, quietness and submission is really important. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, speaking to wives, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Some wives would argue and say, well, my husband is not respectworthy and you're asking me to submit to him. Uh, he's not respectable at all. Uh, at, well, the tough part is what comes next because Paul says, this is fitting to the Lord. So, your submission to one another, your submission in this place as men and women, especially ladies because we're talking to you today, we're trying to unpack this. My submission is not because those who lead or my husband is respect worthy. I submit because this honors God. My submission honors God. It's got nothing to do with that person. It's honors God. And so this is what it means. Submit to your husband until he becomes respectworthy. He's not respectable, but submit to him until he becomes respectworthy. This honors God. That's what Paul's saying. So we come in with this submissive spirit. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Ladies, every man has a boss. His boss is Jesus. Right? And if he is dropping the ball, he will answer to his boss one day. And that's going to be Jesus. What Jesus asks you to do, next, the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. What God is saying to you is, respect, submit to your husband because this honors God. And when we gather as a church, let's come together, all of us. But ladies, your role is 
let me come with a submissive spirit. Let me, let me, and, and I'm not submitting to the person behind the pulpit. I'm submitting to God. I'm asking God to come and change my life and shape my life and renew my thoughts, etc., etc., etc. There's an example of this kind of submission. It doesn't really apply to ladies. It applies to a man, actually, Timothy. And, uh, and in Acts chapter 16, Paul tells a story where he wanted Timothy to come with him on a mission trip. Now, Timothy's dad is a Gentile. His mom is a Jew. So Timothy's grown up uncircumcised. And Paul's going to take him on a mission trip to Jewish people. And so Paul says to him, right, Timothy, um, you want to come with me? That's great. You need to be circumcised. And, and I was just reading through that going, hmm, just wondering how we would advertise that mission trip in our church. Hey, everybody, we're going on a mission trip, and we love you to come with. It's going to cost you this much. You need a four-by-four four to get there. Oh, and by the way, we're going to get Dr. Kettles to circumcise all of you men. <laughs> Who's in? Oh, you guys are like, what? What? Are you, are, you, are you mad? Timothy submits to that. And this is the same Paul who later, I mean, I don't know if it happened later or before, but we do know in the Scriptures, Paul says, hey, not everything is... Uh, uh, you know, I have to, you know. Uh, it's, you know, everything's permissible. Not everything's beneficial. Okay. It would have been great if he had taught Timothy that verse just before that circumcision thing, you know. Hey, Paul, hang on. You know, don't you think that everything is, you know, permissible? Can't I just go along anyway? The reason why Paul does that, we found that out just now applying to this situation, is because the people he's going to are Jewish, and if he took an uncircumcised believer with him, it would have hamstrung the whole ministry. It, straight away, they wouldn't have listened. So he speaks about submissive spirit. Second one he speaks about is modest adornment. This is tough. Ladies, this is, this is going to be hard, all right? He says that he doesn't want you, Christian woman, godly woman, he wants you to practice modesty and self-control. He doesn't want you to adorn yourself with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. There's a story in the history books around the same time of um, one of the wives of an emperor. And she had a dress. The dress was adorned with emeralds. They were sewn right across the dress. Not just sequins, you know, like our plastic stuff. Ladies, you got like plastic stuff. All These were real emeralds. The dress was worth more than currently a million dollars. A 15 million rand, the dress, was worth more than that. The pagan mystery cults and the believers looked at that and said, that is wrong. Because she had spent so much money on making herself look beautiful. Jew Jewish ladies and Greek ladies would braid their hair. There was no problem with that. But what started happening is it wasn't just a braid. It was the clip I use in the braid. It needed to be gold. And then it also needed to just not just be gold, but gold with pearls. And then special tortoise shells were shaped that would fit over the braids. And so now it became a status symbol. Not just, I've braided my hair, practicality, and it, you know, it looks nice. And now it became a status symbol. Oh, look at me. Look how much money I've spent on my hairdo. Look how much money I've spent on all these gold clips in my hair and these pins. And look at all the pearls over my hair. You see, it became, and these ladies were getting their self-worth from how much money they'd spent on themselves instead of their worth in Christ. And the dresses that ladies were wearing in the same way. When Paul says, I want you to, um, to dress yourself with attire that is pleasing to God, it can also mean, I want you to dress your mind in the same. So not just the outside, but also the inside. So ladies, 
it means that you need to be intentional about dressing your mind with modesty, um, with self-control, and understanding that God is the one who gives you worth. Not those who look in. Not the, not the gawking eyes of men of our culture who say, you need to look like this or you need to look like that. And if your dress size is above or below this size, then sorry, but you're not beautiful. And there's a point at which you have to go, I need to get my self-worth in Christ, and I, and, I, and I need to understand who He is. Because as you know, there's no such thing as a dress that's too expensive. If you've ever watched a program on TV, say yes to the dress. These ladies walk into a, a bridal shop and they're choosing a bride's gown and, and they always go in with, well, what's your budget? No, it's a three and a half thousand dollars. I'm falling off the chair at that point. <gasps> so three and a half thousand dollars. What we could do with that. And then it ends up being like $25,000. I've just said yes to $25,000. What happened to $3,500 on the side? Now we're saying $25,000 on this side. There's always one more expensive. Always something that, you know, it's not okay to just have a pair of jeans that cost 1,000 rand. It must be the ones that cost 2,000 rand. Because of the, you see, that's a 1,000 rand logo that's on it. You know, that's the 1,000 rand logo. And so we're forced into thinking if I wear the right clothes, if I wear the right shoes, if I have the right top, then I have worth. And Paul's saying, no, Christian woman, you need to dress yourself differently, especially modesty and self-control. Control yourself. Control your own thoughts. Don't allow your thoughts to run away from you on this one. If you're a mom and you're a believer and you're trying to raise a daughter in the faith, your job is even harder. I have a daughter, and she's young. And when I want to buy clothes for her, I find clothes hanging on the shelf rack for her age, that's under 10, clothes that have been designed to elicit lust from grown men when adult women wear those clothes. And then I'm going, well, I don't want to buy my daughter that. You know what the problem is? There's no clothes to buy your young daughter any. There are no other clothes. You've got to work so hard to find something that your daughter can grow up dressing modestly, beautifully, but modestly. That she feels good about herself also and doesn't feel like you just kind of wrapped her up in a, in a sheet and tied a rope around her, you know? Friends, you've got to work hard on this one. We have to work hard on this one. Ladies, what Paul's trying to say is this. We shouldn't have to have our hands dripping with gold so much so that you want to walk around with both of your hands in a safe. You know? That's what he's saying. How many, how many rings do you need? How many diamonds do you need? How many pairs of Jimmy shoes do you need? Jimmy Choo shoes do you need? Right? How many pairs of jeans? How many? How many? How many? Self-control. Practice self-control. It is not necessary. Modest adornment. He says this, your adornment as a believer, ladies, listen up here. Your adornment comes from good works. So Paul's going, this is how you dress yourself? Good works. There's this beautiful thing that God does. As a believing woman, as you practice good works, God in turn dresses you with those good works. It's this incredible thing. And we can't do it. This is a, this is a mysterious thing that God does that as you Start to practice good works and honor him. He makes you beautiful in the sights of others. Somebody could walk past you 20 years younger than you in her slim fit jeans 
and her top that should be for a 10-year-old. And she comes walking past, and everybody looks at you and goes, that's beautiful. Not that, that just walked past you. You are beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Ladies, you need to change the way that God sees you. You need to change in your mind. You need to start believing what God says about you and not what our culture says about you. The third one, this is the big one. So it's a submissive spirit. It's modest adornment. And the next one is appropriate speech-led roles. Appropriate speech-led roles. So 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 both say that Paul does not permit a woman to teach. She must be silent. She mustn't speak in church. Right? So we do know that this, this doesn't mean that every single woman must never say a single word in church. Okay? We do know that. It doesn't mean that, ladies, when you come in here, you have to start doing charades. That's what I mean. Uh, so your husband comes, he's like, I can't find my wife. And we'll, we go, excuse me, we're just looking for Jack's wife. And she's like, She, no, that's not, she can speak. Ladies, if you need to find your way to the bathroom, you, don't, you know, you can ask, excuse me, um, where's the bathroom? You're allowed to say that, all right? That's obvious, okay? So it looks like there's some that it's appropriate and some that's not appropriate. Well, let's have a look at some that God's Word talks about two ladies specifically. The one is gossip. But this is not just for women. Okay, guys, we kind of get nailed into this one as well. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8 speaks about this in a list of sins. And it says, rid yourself from all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Filthy language. If you're swearing, you want a verse on it, there it is. Filthy language. In the qualifications of deacons, and then by implication also elders, one of the qualifications is that your wife needs to be someone who's not a slanderer or a gossip or a malicious talker. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Ladies, do you know that your husband, people might look to your husband and say, well, he's a good leader. He could serve and he serves well. That he could serve as a deacon in the life of a church or he could serve as an elder in the life of the church. But if you're a gossip, you disqualify your husband from fulfilling his role as a leader. Did you know that? That's what it means. I mean, and we're taking it for granted that the guy then is not a gossip because if he's a gossip, he wouldn't be, no one would be noticing him as a leader. But gossip is something that God's word says, hey, this should have no place in the lives of Christians. Listen to what Proverbs says in verse, chapter 26 and verse 20. It says, without food, sorry, without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Think about that. So gossip, appropriate speech, gossip, out. Second one, this is in, passing on of faith. Titus is, Paul writes to Titus and he speaks about women and he says this, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, again, there it is, or slaves to much wine. Can I just say this if you're kind of wondering, am I gossip, am I slave to much wine? If you're, if you're on Facebook, here's a good test for you. Go back and look at your profile over the last month or two months and look at the things that you've said on Facebook and have a look at the pictures that you've taken of yourself on Facebook and you'll very quickly be able to see if you're a gossip and a lover of wine. If you're not on Facebook, I don't have another way, all right? 
But if you are on Facebook, I do have another way. Go and ask somebody. Right? Go and ask someone. Do you think I'm a lover of wine? Do you think? Okay. They are to teach what is good. So this is what women need to do. Teach what is good. So Paul just said don't teach, but now he says teach. So clearly we, we don't really understand this too well. We're bringing some clarity in this. And so train younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So if, if there is a woman younger than you who is married, your role is to train her to be a good wife. Right? All the ladies, that's your role. You train younger women to be great moms and great wives. But this is where it starts to get a little bit more into the meat. And that's authoritative speech. This is the issue at stake. Those commentators, and there are, there are a bunch of commentators who say, well, women can teach, they can have authority. Some even say women can have authority where they lead churches. Then on that side, you've got Women coming to church, they sit on that side. Men sit on that side. Women are not allowed to say anything. Men are the ones who can talk. The worship is led by men. The welcoming is done by men. The preaching is done by men. The Sunday school teaching is done by men. Women, you don't do anything. You sit in your place. That's it. There are those as well. Those who hold to women should not teach, tie it up with the next part where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. So the teaching is linked with authority and having authority over a man. So the argument is, what I'm doing now, teaching God's word, I have authority over you. But I'm going to show you just now that that's not actually the case. 1 Corinthians 14 tells, uh, tells us that he, it's, it's a law. It's like Paul says, don't do this. But let's have a look at how women were related to and women in Scripture. You have women who were ministered to the Samaritan woman. Jesus ministers to the Samaritan woman. And, uh, and then after ministering to the Samaritan woman, she leaves and goes to her town and tells everyone in the town about Jesus, and they all come back to Jesus. All right? So should Jesus not have said to her at that point, just hold on, I know that, you know, like I've just made an impact in your life here, but you're not allowed to say anything to anyone about this. You're a woman. You see, if anyone is going to apply this consistently, Jesus must. All right? And he doesn't. He lets her go. She goes and tells people about him. She's evangelizing. And some have argued that I read that women should not be doing the job of evangelism. This should, only be doing, this should only be the job of men. Because by evangelizing, you're leading people. You're having authority over them. Jesus is like, man, let's stop nitpicking over there. Go tell people about me. That's great. So, so she goes. And people believe. Jesus had woman disciples. We'll think of Mary and Martha. In, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, there's even a story of Phoebe who was a deaconess. She's a, she's, I mean, a deacon's men, deaconess. He has a woman who was a deaconess, and she was well known for serving the church. But let's drill it down a little bit more. We actually find examples in Scripture of women who ministered. Here's one, Priscilla and Aquila. If you read Romans chapter 16 and also Acts chapter 18, there's this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and because her name is mentioned first, it means she carried more of a lead role. Okay, when you read the scriptures, the name that's mentioned first, that's the one that carried the lead. So you always read about Paul and Silas, not Silas and Paul. Paul and Timothy, not Timothy and Paul. And, and what's really interesting is that when Paul goes out with Barnabas in the beginning, it's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And then all of a sudden it becomes Paul and Barnabas. The re- and it stays Paul and Barnabas right to the end. The reason for that is because Paul's now leading the charge. But with Priscilla, it's a husband mentioned as well. 
So she's, she's with her husband. They're ministering together. They have a church in their home. They have a church in their home, this couple. She's the one who's, who's leading the charge with her husband. And then they meet this guy named Apollos. And they hear Apollos preaching, but they realize there's a, little thing, a couple of things that he's off. And the Bible says that Priscilla and Aquila talk with Apollos and teach him the truths of the faith. And he becomes a champion for the gospel because of that ministry of Priscilla, woman, and Aquila. It should have been Priscilla noticed Aquila did all the teaching. But it wasn't. Acts chapter 21 and verse 9. This is an awkward one. Okay, you've got Philip here. Philip has four daughters. The Bible says all four of them were prophetesses. Okay, now if a woman must be quiet in church, you can't become a prophetess unless you prophetize, right? Okay, have you got that? You can't be like, oh, I'm a prophet. Really? What prophecies have you shared? No, none yet. And I'm, I, I don't, you know, I must keep quiet. I'm a woman. I keep quiet in church. How do you know you're a prophet? I don't know. I just think I am. No, no. You know you're a prophet because you're sharing something and people are listening to what you're saying, weighing it up, and it's right. These are ladies who are sharing in church. And if it was wrong for a woman to do that, then Philip should have gone to the first daughter after she did it for the first time and said, my love, God is your king. I love you. I'm your dad. But my girl, you can't do that in church. And then the other three daughters, they wouldn't have done it either. But instead, one, two, three, four, they all do it. They're all prophetesses. So, so we're starting to get a picture here that Paul's saying this, but actually, this was happening. Is Paul wrong? Or is it something I don't understand in this? Is there more information I need? The fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. What about this one? The Bible says all the fruit are for everybody and all the gifts are for everybody. The Bible doesn't say these fruit are only for men and these fruit are for women or these gifts are for men and these gifts are for women. It doesn't say that. It says the gifts and the fruit for everyone. The Holy Spirit gives them as He determines, not based on your gender. And the thing is this, teaching is one of those gifts. And it does not say when talking about those gifts, it does not say the gift of teaching, in brackets, given only to women, uh, only to men, sorry, only to men, sorry about this woman, close brackets, and then carries on. It doesn't say that. It's like God gives these gifts, teaching, leadership, encouragement, hospitality, tongues, healing. There they are. They're the gifts. And they're given to men and women. There's one thing that we don't see women doing in the scriptures. Just one. We see women being ministered to, and we see women ministering. We see women as deacons, and I think you could safely say Priscilla and Aquila, or even if you want to put it the other way around, Aquila and Priscilla were pastoring a church in their home. They were serving the role as pastors of that church. There's even a, a very ambiguous, I wouldn't build a theology around it, but of two people in Rome, in the book of Romans, in chapter 16, it, it says this in one version. It says they were outstanding amongst the apostles. Some argued that they were apostles and were outstanding as apostles. Some argued, no, no, they were well known to the apostles. The ESV translates that well known to the apostles. The thing is this, is that the one had a man's name and the other one was an, a name that could be applied to a lady. But here's one thing that we don't see ladies doing. We don't see ladies in the role of an elder in the scriptures. We, we don't see that. We, don't, we see ladies serving as deacons, but not as elders. Which could make some ladies feel like, hey, isn't that a bit sexist? Well, it's going to be helpful now as we wrap this up together. If God's word is saying that I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man because 
Paul's saying to this church where Timothy is, the women in this church, they've never been in the public gatherings before and allowed to talk. The men have. If you bring ladies into that setting and they start asking questions and they start teaching, there's a cultural issue that's at stake here. The church itself gets seen as stepping over some cultural lines. The church itself um, will, will actually, the church will mess up its own vision by doing that and its own mission. Let me give you an example. In the English language, you have the Queen's English here. Then you have South African English here. Then you have slang over here. And then you have swear words over here. And then on this side, you've got Australian. Okay? <laughs> the boundary between one, the Queen's English and South African English, it's a bit grayed. The boundary between slang and English, our language we speak, it's a bit grayed. And if you're going to, from visiting different cultures, the boundary between swear words and slang words is also blurred. So I come back from a conference meeting with some of my pastor friends who are ministering in America, Australia, England, Singapore, and we've been talking, and, and sometimes a guy will say a word, and I'm cringing because in my culture, that's a swear word. But in his culture, it's just a slang word. And I know you go like, no, no, there are only swear words. No, no. Well, actually, let me tell you, there's not. All right, there are some words that are slang words and some words that are not. And just a little footnote on that, as Christians, if it offends someone, don't say it. All right? And make sure you're not using it in a culture where it does offend people. So one of my friends comes to preach at Sterling Baptist Church. And I know he's from a culture where they use a certain word. When he gets up to preach here, before he gets up, I say to him, Hey, listen, by the way, I've heard this sermon before. You know where you say this thing and you use that word? He goes, yeah, yeah, don't use it here. That's, that is an offensive word in our culture. Oh, all right, thank you. He gets up, he preaches it. Because if he uses a word, it's going to offend you, and it's just going to blast his whole ministry out of the water. In the same way, what Paul's trying to do over here is he's trying to protect women who've just found their new freedom in Christ from abusing that freedom. That's what Paul's trying to do to the Corinthian church and the Ephesian church. And that's why he says, I don't permit women to do this. But in other occasions, he does. The reason this is specific to this context. Now, if you have a church that's led by a team of elders who are men, all right, and all ministry that happens in that church happens submitting to a team of elders. By the way, what I'm doing now is not lording authority over you. I do this under the authority of the elders of our church. I submit to their authority also. Here they are sitting in the front. I submit to their authority also. We submit to one another. We lead together. So if I'm preaching, I'm preaching under delegated authority, not my own authority. So if a woman comes to preach in this pulpit, is she, a preaching, in, is she preaching in her own authority or is she preaching under delegated authority? She's preaching under delegated authority. She's not having authority over men because this church is led by men. And that perhaps would explain why women are not elders. One of the reasons why men are supposed to be elders. Perhaps. Another reason might be because Jesus' apostles were all men. And when Jesus called his disciples, he could have called women. He had women who followed him. He could have called them. But they were all men as well. And maybe Jesus did that because he wants to show that the household of faith should be led in the same way that a family household is led. And that's by men who love Jesus and who give an example to their wives 
their brides, their sisters, their mothers, of what it means to be a Christ follower. And so the challenge as we've laid out a challenge to the ladies and saying, well, you know, what's your speech? What's your attire? Um, what's your, uh, um, the way that you engage with people, the way that you uh, shape your mind? Here's the challenge to men. I don't know if this is so much about women not speaking in church, but I can tell you it's definitely about this. Men, you better step up and lead. You better step up and lead, and you better step up and teach. Because God expects us to do it. He expects us to lead. And if that seemed a bit like, oh, that was a bit forceful, ladies, bring them here next week, because next week's going to be a blast. <laughs> right? Okay. Order in the church. It's really important. Ladies, you have a role to play. God's word raises you up um, and gives you a place of purpose and a place of ministry. Now let's pray together. Father, as we wrap up this morning, I want to thank you that, you've, uh, that you made us both male and female for a specific purpose. We have different roles, but God, you love us and you use us. Thank you, God, that, uh, that you've given given insight to men and to women for the glory of the gospel. That over the centuries we've seen men teaching your word with power and passion, but we've also seen women preaching your word with power and passion. God, we've seen men leading well, but we've also seen men leading badly. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be an example of the former. That in our church we would we'd always have men who lead well, who lead out of a loving heart as a husband should love his family and love his wife as Christ loved the church. That the elders of our church would be great examples of that. That as men in our church, our, our wives would find it easy to submit to our leadership because we are submitting to yours, Jesus. And God, I just want to thank you for the women in this church who love your word who teach others, who pass on faith to children and other young women. Thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.